Welcome to the Almost Perfect Podcast, a celebration of fuck-ups, failures, and falling flat on your face. This is a podcast that believes you can learn from experience, but that experience doesn't have to be your own. Ha, I'm but perfect, and I'm a functional fuck-up. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes. And today we are learning from Kaylee Bratt. Now, Kaylee is a writer, editor, and co-founder of a company called Letterhead, which is a writing agency that uh, I write for. Now, I've known Kaylee through the internet for at least a decade, through through Twitter, and also I've written underneath her at Superbalist once or twice. And yes, Kaylee is uh, the person responsible for all those newsletters that you used to get. Not me, because I, I hit that unsubscribe button like a motherfucker. But yeah, the I saw all those tweets. I saw, <laughs> saw all of that, and Kaylee did too. So we, we joke about that a little bit, but we do find out how Kaylee came to work with Superbalist, how she came to work with GQ, and uh, what else was it? There was Glamour, and there's been a whole lot of magazines and clients since, and so that's why she eventually started this company, because, well, there were too many people that needed words, and she only had so many words to give. So her and some friends teamed up, they started this company, Letterhead, and they've got in a whole bunch of freelance South African writers together to provide words for a whole bunch of different uh, clients. And I've really, really enjoyed it, man. I've actually, <laughs> I've really enjoyed the process of working with Letterhead, and I've really enjoyed getting to know Kaylee a bit better. We've only hung out a couple times, but yeah, I dig her vibe, and those conversations really fun and really funny and really informative of course and i think yeah you're gonna get you're gonna get a lot out of this and just personally i'm looking forward to working with kaylee and letterhead quite a lot more going forward i really like you'll like i if you know me like you know i haven't necessarily always enjoyed the writing process like just because of editors and pay <laughs> and now my editors are cool and the pay is what i ask for so what more could I really fucking want? I get to actually write articles that I want to write a lot of the time. Like I get to pitch stuff that I'm interested in. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's back and forth. Like, you know, I can pitch something and then it can be like, ah, what about this? And then like, that's cool. I'm cool with that. I like the back and forth. So yeah, it's just, it's been refreshing, I must say. I also must say that uh, at about 49 minutes in, I'm gonna say, you're like, it's gonna suddenly... I'm gonna be like, and I was just talking about this, but you wouldn't hear the thing that I'd just been talking about because the batteries on the Zoom died uh, midway through and didn't save the little section. And that happened a couple times actually, unfortunately, even though I had them fucking fully charged. It said three on the thing when I put them in, but we, we live and we learn. And yeah, so there's one little part. Like I think I got the rest of the edits down pretty well. And so you shouldn't notice too many <laughs> like disturbances, but there's one that's noticeable. So I figured I would tell you about that. I also got to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by you, which means you can support it by going to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect. And for as little as $1 a month, you can support this podcast. So like if you think this is worth about four or five bucks, you know, this episode in particular, and you're going to listen to a couple more episodes. Hey, why not chuck me a dollar? And uh, you can also buy merch over at almostperfect.co.za. You can buy t-shirts and mugs, and I send you stickers and that sort of thing. And if you're on the Patreon, sometimes I send you shirts and mugs and stickers and that sort of thing. 
you can also suggest guests, you can ask questions, it's... I'm, I'm, I give some exclusive content, like maybe once every three months. I'm not gonna lie to you here, like I'm not like, oh, you get fucking premiere content over Patreon. You're, you're doing the Patreon because you like this podcast, and sometimes you get extra free shit. So if that sounds like a good deal to you, head on over to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect and uh, help me buy some new batteries. I'm also excited to be getting back on stage. Uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a break, actually. There's been no gigs, for me at least, in January. So 25th of February, we are out at Stump Nose. I'm going to be DJing afterwards as well. But yeah, this is, it's me, it's Tibbs, and it's a bunch of youngsters on the scene bringing some comedy to Kloof. And that's the weekend after my birthday. And then on the 18th, I'm doing like a little house party thing where I'm going to be practicing my National Arts Festival set and got some comedy, some music, that sort of thing going on. That one, like, just DM me if you want to come through. And, like, if I reply to your DM, obviously don't think you're a fucking weirdo. If I, if I don't, then... It's us for making things awkward then. That's, uh, it's just a risk you're gonna have to take. But the 25th, anyone can come through. Anyone can come through. You, you got 60 bucks, you can buy your tickets over on the Almost Perfect website, and uh, we can have a good time together. And speaking of having a good time together, I think that's enough of the intro jibber-jabber, and uh, you can get to hear the good time Kaylee Bratz and I had together in this interview. Here it comes, it's the Almost Perfect Podcast with Kaylee Bratz. So how are you living, Kaylee? Hello, thank you for having me. Um, how am I living? I am back in Durban probably for the longest that I've been since I moved away for the first time. I am hot and sweaty, as one should be in Durban. And I am otherwise pretty much the same as I always am. Like I was saying to you earlier, just sending my little emails, doing my little writing tasks. Is that, is that what your life has become these days? I think that's what my life has become. Um, more of the little emails than the little writing tasks. Yeah, I get um, quite a few of your little emails. When, <laughs> when I when I send you emails, then I get a bunch back. It's great. Yes, that's exactly how it works. <laughs> good good return on investment there because uh, yeah, I send all the all the resources back, which I guess is how you are leading us into talking about what I do. Yes, so. <laughs> You are one of the co-founders of a company called Letterhead, which is a company I actually work for. So this is a little nepotistic in the opposite <laughs> way. Like it's not often yeah, that yeah. you like get your boss well, on your thing, you know? There you go. It works. So what is Letterhead and how did it come about? All right. So Letterhead is a company that I co-founded with some friends of mine to solve a lot of the problems that I was facing as a freelancer. So I went full-time freelance a few years back and there were some good problems and some bad problems. And I always talk about the good problems being that I had too much work. That's obviously great as a freelancer, but... I mean, it depends. If they're, if they're paying you your rate, <laughs> then that's fine. Yes, but. then it's great to have too much work. And yeah, we will certainly get into that later. But I, I was getting enough work that I wanted to take on, plus some more that I also wanted to take on. And it's one thing to be able to refer a job to a friend. That's great. But a lot of the jobs that I couldn't take on were too big for one person. So it was a case of obviously needing to collaborate with someone, obviously needing to set something up where multiple people were working on the same thing. And the bad problems were 
closely linked to what you've just raised about <laughs> people wanting to pay too little, about people not paying on time, not respecting freelancers, essentially, not respecting your time as a freelancer, not respecting really what writers do, because that is another important point about Letterhead. It is for writers. And so... If I were to give the elevator pitch of what Letterhead is, it's basically a studio for freelance writers. And the more <laughs> client-facing elevator pitch is that we are the one-stop words shop. So that is what we provide. If you need words for a press release, a website, a whole brand, something as small as your wedding invitation, we can do that. So it's been a really interesting hate to use this term, journey, um, <laughs> because it's been, yeah, one of those no two days are the same type of situations. People have obviously understood what we were saying with One Stop Workshop because we have had lots of widely varied jobs coming to us and I get to work with a lot of writers on a daily basis so a lot of writers a lot of them so many <laughs> like because just when we were doing the Mail and Guardian um thing like mm. that was I don't know there was at least 20 like other writers yes. like involved in that so like yes. how many writers are you working with okay so we have some writers who are almost full-time with us, as in they are almost full-time freelancers, or they are full-time freelancers, <laughs> but not necessarily all of their work is coming from letterhead. And I'd say that there are about 20 people in that situation. So they are wanting to allocate all of their time to freelance writing. That's their job. Then we have probably about 30 other writers who are in various stages of wanting <laughs> to be freelancers. So Either they're transitioning out of freelance writing because they're wanting to become a full-time writer. Um, maybe they studied it and they wanted to do some freelancing while they were looking for a full-time position. Or they're transitioning out of a full-time position. They've been at an agency and they're feeling brave enough to go on their own now and do the freelance thing. Or there are just people who have a full-time job and they love their full-time job and have no desire to leave it, but they want to write some interesting features on something that they're passionate about in their spare time. So what's nice for us is that we have all of those people on call. And if we have someone who needs an article on a specific topic or who needs someone with some specific expertise on a topic, that is easy for us to arrange. And it works well for the writers because... I think, yeah, we all know that the writing that pays the bills sometimes isn't the the fun stuff or the most interesting stuff. And yeah. I mean, I just know in my past, I've said to some editors, hey, I don't think I'm suited for this. And they've been <laughs> like, yeah, well, let's do it on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there is also a fair amount of that. I sometimes am that, that editor too. So I'm, I'm not going to act like I, I'm only giving out dream dream assignments no, and but dream like, jobs. I mean, from my experience, the process has been about collaborating on things that you both, you know, yeah. it suits the writer, essentially. Yes. Like you're not going to give like <laughs> you know, me a game drive to write about, you know, it's just... Not yet. <laughs> like, you never know what's coming. I mean, like, yeah, we'll see who the clients is. <laughs> but exactly. that's also what's been, so from my side, what's been really fun about this. So like I was probably one of those writers who was, you know, fading out of the style of writing, you know, content writing as it's called these days, but sure. like features and that sort of stuff. Because it's not really content writing in terms of content for 
like you know because there's two kinds of content writing there's the stuff mm. that people actually read and then <laughs> there's the stuff that's for seo yes that just needs to live there somewhere deep deep in the website yeah um yeah which is no, the no. stuff that i've done enough of and like i can still do it but i you know prefer not to and like i'm gr- grateful i get to do the more features kind of writing yeah. stuff with you but what i've liked about the process is that it's been multiple different brands and clients and like yeah we've chatted about a few different potentials as well of like you know approaching different clients and that so what's that side of things like for you how did you get all these different clients on board what was the process like from the get-go though like the beginning who are your first like okay (laughs) and then how did it grow into all of this right so I I think that <laughs> the reason that we've been able to be pretty collaborative and the reason that we're always so open to lots of pitches and lots of kind of left field out there ideas is that I run out of ideas. I don't have enough <laughs> ideas for <laughs> all the clients and I don't have enough ideas to delegate to all the writers. So I love it when we get some pitches in that are, that are interesting, that are maybe a bit weird, um, and we can usually find a home for them, which is great. Now, Starting right at the beginning, when I, I was going to say when I wanted to start Letterhead, but I actually didn't particularly want to start a company. Did someone else in the company (laughs) push you to do it? Yes, pretty much. This is where I confess that Katie pushed me to do it. No, not quite. So Katie is my first co-founder in that she is the person who I approached to help to get my freelance finances in order. It's the boring story about taxes, basically. But if you are getting other people to do some of your writing and you're getting all of it into your bank account, things are going to go badly with taxes because it looks like you're making a lot more money than you are. So I had approached her just for quite a simple financial plan to to either make my money situation work or to make it into a company. She really liked the idea and she came up with a good plan for Letterhead and she essentially was the one who, yeah, pushed me to start it. That's a good way to put it. Other person who pushed me to start it and who was working with me even long before Katie is James Nash. He is another of my co-founders, also a writer. And we were kind of partnering up on those jobs that I was telling you about okay. where... He's the only one I don't know from. Y- yes, he's but. probably <laughs> shadowy figure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he is the one that I was working with on a lot of the jobs that were too big for one person to work on. And yeah, we we both like the way that the other one writes and we're a good writing team. So it's also always been great that he's always had faith in my abilities and my... Uh, not only writing abilities, but also abilities to micromanage and to <laughs> pressure clients into paying on time. Um, all the things that I don't enjoy so much. And then our other two co-founders are Rosie Goddard, who is also a writer. Yep. Um, yeah, brilliant writer who I worked with at Superbalist. Um, she was one of my second in commands of the copy department there. Which um, we'll get sorry. <laughs> Which we'll get into. I like that you're leading we'll into everything. Into. Like, yeah, <laughs> Put a pin in it, as they say. <laughs> and then the other co-founder is Patrick, who, Patrick Fisser, I always feel like he doesn't need a surname. He needs no introduction. Not in Cape Town, but yeah, for, for everybody else listening, Patrick Fisser is... 
the guy who throws the parties. Yeah, man's um, <laughs> man, ladies' man, man about town, catch a block. Like. Exactly. Best known at the moment, I think, for Strictly 2000s. I wouldn't know. I'm too old to go to those, but they happen close to my house, so I get to hear some of the some of the beats. Um, like, oh, Patrick's living his life. Yeah, he's living. And I got him on board, I always say, because he is one of the few people I know who genuinely likes people and genuinely likes working with people. Yeah, it's It's weird. weird. I don't understand it. (laughs) And when I want to, like, retreat into my little cave and never talk to another human being again... Patrick says something like yesterday, he said, but we move when I was irritated <laughs> with client feedback and I was ready to fight. That's I was exactly like, do we move, really Patrick? No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been great having this little dream team assembled because we are very different personalities and we're very different <laughs> skill sets. And yeah, I think I think that prevents a lot of murders along the way of of people who irritate, particularly the writer side, the moody writer side of the team. I'm talking about myself, <laughs> and yeah, we got started to manage some of the projects that I was already working on as a freelancer. Yeah, like, so, so you would have just transferred those into yeah, more, like. But were you already doing stuff like with contracts on that at that stage? Yes, I was doing a little bit of stuff like that, but probably not enough. Um, <laughs> probably not enough sort of organization of actually getting things in writing. I mean, when you say contracts, it would be like, yes, I was on a retainer, but the retainer was never formalized and it was chaos. So. Yeah, so now you've formalized those structures. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I guess we had the, the added. Um, How'd your clients take it, by the way? Confidence. Okay, so a lot of them, I think, were pretty happy to have the added reassurance of seeing that things were going to be less chaotic and that they, you know, there's that whole thing about if you want to get paid by a client, you should just make up a fake email address that's accounts at whatever, yes. which I think is great advice. And Yeah, it's not like I, I don't have that on an almost perfect <laughs> at all. <laughs> I don't know if anyone actually believes that Katie exists because generally our clients have not met Katie and some of them seem to think that it's highly suspicious that we have almost the same name. So Kaylee and Katie. Oh, no, like... she, she responds like an accountant. <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she... Well, I am a language person, Bob. I could be faking her voice. Think I about would, it. That would be re- like some great <laughs> writing. That would be better than like a lot of writing is. <laughs> like if you could like, no, I would be v- truly oppressed. Uh, okay. Okay. Good to know. I'm glad. Unless but... you're just using like a chat GPT. Like. Yeah. I'm glad she seems real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, Katie is real. She is one of the founders of You Cook, which many people who love to cook would would know I'm not one of the love to cook people. I mean, I love to cook and I don't know about it, but I'll check it out. Oh, it's time for you to check it out. They are great. And in recent months, they've started doing things like far more ready-made meals than they initially started doing. So I'm getting I'm getting more interested by the day. We did some copywriting for them a while back and I said the most tempting things to me were the kids' meals because <laughs> they all looked like the type of meals that I love to eat. Little, <laughs> little portions of spaghetti bolognese <laughs> with hidden veg so you get your vitamins. Um, <laughs> anyway, she is a brilliant serial entrepreneur and she has a whole host of other businesses that she is either a part of or that she's an investor in. And most of I them don't are. Know how people find the top? Neither do I. I, I, I don't know. 
yeah, when she sleeps. And a lot of them are very sort of hands-on businesses. Like yeah. she's got Beagle and Bassett, which is a, a I mean, just this, like the accounts dime. for this is a lot of accounts. <laughs> yes, like there it's, are a lot of accounts. Like it's a lot of invoices. A it's lot a lot of, of, yeah. A lot of writers, a lot of clients. And yeah, a lot of speedy replying. But yeah, um, <laughs> like that you're telling me all of this, I'm like even more impressed. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that was, that was one side of the reassurance. And then I think it also really helped to get some new clients because being able to show people what you do is obviously very valuable. I mean, I had a website before. I still do. It's still, still <laughs> a website. It's there. <laughs> and um, I, I had that. And I think that that was the reason that a lot of people trusted me with their projects. But Johnny, who you know, Johnny Blood. The, yeah, we'll you go way back. Another another Durban guy and also the other half of Johnny, Johnny and, and Pat, Pat at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we got him to do our brand CI. And yeah, I'm just really grateful to him that he did such a brilliant job on that because a lot of people have said that that's why they wanted to trust it looks good. Yeah, it, it out, does. Yeah. It does. I... Yeah, have, have, I think, annoyed my team quite a bit when they're like, okay, what is our next big move? And I'm like, now we need to make little posters that have tariff phone numbers on them um, because I'm very, I'm very, I suppose, old school like that. And I love that type of advertising. But And then they were like, no, we're going to do a social media campaign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But um, they they have indulged me along the way and let me make my little posters as long as we put them on social media once I've done them. And the stickers. Yeah, all my dreams coming true. So, yeah, to get all the way back to your question of how did we how did we get our clients on board? We've been pretty fortunate in a lot of ways because a lot of clients have come to us. But is that because of like word of mouth, because of advertising, because of like them just knowing that you're doing this now or like I think it's I, I think it's largely word of mouth and the them knowing we're doing this now thing. And I think it's the fact that we've been able to communicate very clearly what it is that we do because I think that maybe letterhead is one of those things that people don't realize they need until they know it exists. They don't know that there's someone there who can do the words. Do it all. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah that too. <laughs> no, because I mean, I think that's because people find copywriters and you can find a copywriter who can do what you want or like, you know, content creator yeah. and this and that. But the thing that does give for a client, you know, letterhead a step up in my mind is that you have a choice of writers. Like, you don't necessarily yeah. choose the writer, but, like, <laughs> you know, you know that the person working on your work is someone suited to it. Yes, I think that that is... Uh, I think that that's a big part of it. I think it's really nice that maybe if you do have a job that has lots of very disparate parts to it, we can put all the writers together to make that happen. Yeah, like or we, we can find a writer who can do it all. Yeah, there we go. So that's been really great. And I think another thing on the on the point that you're making there about being able to handle those sort of bigger jobs that have a lot of different components is that it's really nice for people not to have to deal with a team of writers. <laughs> and <laughs> I say that as someone who's probably the most awful writer to manage because... Because the deadline is when people start writing. Yes, is like exactly. It's literally exactly. The, the freelance motto. Like. And I'm always, yeah, I was always that person who was late with their story or who had a 
long and not very interesting excuse for why it was late. I and mean, so you were a writer in your 20s. Yeah, so yeah, there we go. <laughs> See, for me, I was the same way, but like I'm a bit better at it now because I like living where I do. And there like we go. My, my rent's <laughs> quite a bit more than it used to be. <laughs> There's nothing like the pressure of rent was due to get that right. To go like, yeah, like maybe I can actually get this one in like before the deadline. <laughs> like, invoice 10 minutes after the deadline. That, yeah, that's <laughs> still five. the worst. Like invoicing. Like I don't know why. It's a, just that psychological thing. Like it's a weird, I know there's psychologists. I've listened to podcasts <laughs> about why I do it. Like, and it's still like, yeah, anyway. Just have your beautiful template ready. Have it open in one tab and go for it. Fill out that invoice. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and yeah, I, I guess that's that's sort of the answer, which is a bit of an unhelpful way to answer the question if anyone's looking for tips on how to pick up clients. But, but I think it's more just because of the history of the people involved that you're mm. able to, so like, you know, everyone being writers who yeah. have their own clients and history and yes. stuff like that. And then also the extra writers on board, you know, and also like, I do think the content you guys have been creating for the letterhead stuff, like where, you know, you interview us and like ask yeah. us what books we're right, like reading and stuff like that. And then we share that and more people know about it. And like, I do think that is a strategy that is probably helping. Yeah, I think it does help a lot. First of all, in terms of, as you say, being shareable. And aside from that strategic side of things, <laughs> I think it is... But it's cute, so it's not. Nice. It is, and I think that, uh, yeah, that kind of leads to, to what I was going to say, that they, all of our writers, being they, have really interesting backgrounds and really interesting skill sets and sets of interests, and it's also helpful for clients to see on social media that they are real and we're not, <laughs> again... Yeah, just using different... <laughs> I like it. <laughs> As you can see, I have a bit of insecurity about people thinking that I'm <laughs> making up fake human beings. I think it comes from sitting in coffee shops all day and wondering if the waiters and waitresses think that I actually have no friends and I'm making up all of these people that I <laughs> that I mention. But that is another aspect of freelance life that you've just got to lean into. The loneliness of all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. Uh, um, well, that actually, so I was going to chat about that, was how do you pick the writers? Mm, so I started off by approaching a lot of the writers that I'd worked with in the past. And I'd worked at Superbalist. We're going to need to get into this past soon. The, <laughs> my past, my checkered history. I'd worked at Superbalist, I'd worked in magazines. And from that, I had a kind of a network of people that I enjoyed working with. And... Another of the reasons that I'd, I'd thought about Letterhead and that it was an idea that I had in the back of my mind, if not in the form that it actually ended up being, was that a friend and neighbor of mine who's a stylist was always saying, well, there are agencies for stylists, for photographers, for models. Why isn't there something similar for writers? And I guess that I'd always thought that that just wasn't really a necessary thing. Um, I was wrong. She was right. <laughs> you were right, Mandy. And I think that that, mm, I'm not sure what I'm leading to here. What was your question? <laughs> well, how do you pick your writers? How do I pick my writers? Like okay, great. You worked with and yeah. Oh, you see, it's that hard for me to admit that I'm wrong. I lost my train of thought completely. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I had this idea of who I'd liked working with, who I knew was good, who I maybe knew was freelancing or thinking of freelancing. And I started off by approaching them and asking if they were looking for a bit more work. And I was really 
happy with the response. Pretty much everyone was yeah. excited <laughs> and ambitious about wanting to do some more work and do some more interesting writing. And But it's also like coming with the whole thing of, hey, you're going to handle the client side of it. Because like, <laughs> yes, I think exactly. that's the thing like, we all hate the most is like actually having to like, you know, facilitate a lot of the stuff when you yes. are a freelancer. So like, yeah, like whatever your guys cut is, I'm happy with it because like... <laughs> I get my feet like, it's like, and like I'd literally just have to like pitch them stories, do the writing, send you the writing and we're good. Hopefully not have to send too many just following ups because yeah, I think that that was what almost destroyed me as a freelance writer. Yeah. Hi, any news on this? Do you have any feedback? So yeah, I think that that was something that was really appealing. Um, the fact that there would be someone to find a lot of the work, that there would be someone to support in getting invoices paid, and I suppose someone who would just make it irrelevant whether the client invoice got paid or not, because that is another of Letterhead's yeah. value propositions to writers, that we pay within two weeks of invoicing. So it it's our problem yeah. if the client isn't paying pretty much. And yeah, that's where that's where Katie and I have to get get threatening and get good at good at that cash flow. And then I think that another pretty useful aspect of Letterhead is what you're saying about being able to to pitch the ideas and then to have a bit of a collaborative process about them. Because for a lot of the writers that we work with, maybe if they're starting out in freelancing, they might have only worked with one editor, they might only have worked with one client. And I think that you have to learn quite quickly when you're freelancing that what one client loves, another one will absolutely hate. <laughs> and it's it's never something you should take personally. And yeah, just take the notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just take the notes, just implement. So I think that, uh, yeah, we've got a pretty nice system worked out where we have editors who work directly with writers. And at the moment, a lot of the time, that editor is me. <laughs> but as we're scaling up, we're getting you other editors stuff, on yeah. board. Yeah, and ideally people who have more experience editing than I do and maybe a little bit more precision um, <laughs> than I do on that side of things. Cause well, of the, let's actually talk about that because editing yeah, is fucking hard. It is. <laughs> like, so I, because yeah, like I ran Durban as yours. I wouldn't say I edited mm. Durban as yours. Like, <laughs> like the, the editorial there was uh, sh like shaky at best. All right, great. <laughs> like, I mean, I would like give notes back and stuff. Yes. But like, what the fuck? Were, who was I to be giving notes? <laughs> you know? Like, but like as a writer, that's a thing that I've grown to really appreciate as I've gotten older is notes. Yeah. As an editor who can see the full piece better than you can. Like it mm. is, that's the thing. Like writing is a collaborative process. Like good writing is yes. a, like largely a collaborative process between a writer and an editor. Yeah. Like whatever you read in a book, that has gone back and forth, like oh, yeah. between two people at least many times. Like it, it's. Absolutely. But becoming an editor, and that's the thing. Like, I think a lot of people think they can do it, mm. and maybe some people can do it pretty competently. But to do it well is something that's like, mm. yeah, like a true skill. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I think someone who is not a writer, or maybe is a very new writer, doesn't have actually any concept of how much editing goes into a lot of 
pieces, and yeah. I'm going to sound very. The thing um, is, a lot of it doesn't. Like yes, that was what I was about to say. I'm going to sound very in the good old days, back when I walked to school in the snow type of thing. But I think just having had a brief moment of working in print media has helped me a lot to understand that because you'd have the editor-in-chief who'd have to have his thoughts on the story, his or her, I'm thinking of my GQ days. And then you would have the copy editor who would need to make sure that everything was fitting on the page and that the grammar and punctuation and spelling was correct. And then you'd usually have the section editor who would actually decide whether it, yeah, whether it fit with the with the rest of the, I suppose, feel of the piece or the, of the issue. And even then you're getting critiqued on the actual piece before it goes out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas like with a lot of, lot of modern content stuff, like, and I know from my own experience, like mm. working with, you know, various different places that you send them the article. Yeah. And that's what gets published. <laughs> yes. Like, it's like, this is like the second draft, bro. Like, you know, yeah. like I, you, you're meant to give me notes and then I write it again. And then you edit it after that. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes when you get that feedback that's like, no, no, it's you're like, wait, no, 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 there need to be notes. (laughs) Thank you for the compliment, but please read it again because, (laughs) yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I was fortunate to work when I was at... Superbalist and when I was at GQ, actually, uh, with Dylan Muhlenberg, who is very much the type of editor who can do what you've just yeah. explained, can see the big picture. So he's very much I mean, not a sub-editor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I was at Superbalist and I was head of copy, he was head of blog, which meant that he had the more editorial eye over everything. And he decided what went onto the blog and what was produced and oversaw some of the art direction of the site um, while I was on the copywriting side of things. So So you were the one getting the notes then? Well, I was about to say, when you say that you were at Superbalist and you were the head of copy, people always suddenly click that you were the reason for all those newsletters. Um, (laughs) So that was mainly what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah, but so I was busy giving notes on six to eight newsletters a day, and then I was getting notes on my blog pieces from (laughs) Dylan. And yeah, he's not a sub-editor type of editor. He is the type of person who is there for the big picture and you can pitch him a story idea and he'll be able to immediately see why it will work, why it won't work, what needs to be added. And so I really benefited a lot from that. And when we were at GQ together, Dylan was my very first boss. So I was a an online assistant then, which <laughs> sounds like something very different to what it is now. I'm not, I wasn't like, yeah, an online assistant now, I guess, would be a virtual assistant yeah. who helps you to schedule your appointments. But I was the assistant for the online department. So how did you get in there with GQ and all these places? Because like, let's actually go, like, yeah, let's actually, yeah, let's just get your story because you keep dropping all these okay. things and like, Go back and do the whole CV. Yeah, so you studied, right? Yes. So I went to UCT and... Because you just needed to get the fuck out of Durban. Yeah, I think think that was a lot of it. (laughs) And I arrived there very badly informed, I guess, because I thought that you could just study English. I thought that was what I was going to be studying, (laughs) just English. English. And then I was told that I needed to find three electives for the first semester. And as it turned out, for the following three years. 
So I picked up linguistics and media as the electives that stayed with me through those three years. They sounded like the closest thing to studying English English, that I could find. And linguistics was probably the most... Way more than just studying English. (laughs) Yes, was probably the most challenging of them. There's science, there's biology, there's... And it's a pretty, like, modern science, essentially. Absolutely. Like, and it's cutting edge, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's fascinating because, obviously, language is changing all the time, so... And as how it all science. works with the brain as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I loved that, and it was great, but I was terrible at it. And <laughs> then film and media, I actually generally didn't love as much. Um, I didn't love my early years of studying it. A lot of it was very theoretical and... I think that I really warmed to it when I took a creative writing seminar in my third year. And I also, yeah, was kind of pushed by that elective or that subject to do an internship. So I then went on, let me get this right. Yes. Okay. So that was when I applied to do an internship. And My best friend Pete applied for an internship at GQ. He will become relevant later. That's why we're naming him. And I applied for an internship at Glamour. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And yeah, we just applied for those because they were in the same building and it would be fun. So I ended up doing my internship at Glamour and I loved it. It was... I'm trying to think that, like, living in Cape Town also probably helps with this, these sorts of things. Because, like, yes. I'm thinking of the yeah. people of know that have worked at these, like, glossy magazines. Yeah. And they were all from Cape Town. <laughs> so yes. Like, so the, like, the thing has clicked to my mind. Like, oh, yeah, that's where those Something is <laughs> making sense. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that ended up being the reason that I didn't come back to Durban after three years of studying because I... I mean, it can't be the only reason. <laughs> well, yeah, so I I'm had... in a bit of a phase at the moment. You're in a bit of a phase of wanting to get to Cape Town. Not but, just Cape Town, just to get out of Durban. <laughs> all right, stay, stay where the load shitting is minimal while you can. No, but I, yeah, I loved Cape Town. It was great to be there, but during those three years of studying, it became very clear to me that all of the media jobs were in Cape Town. So I was doing this internship and I was learning a bit about how media worked. I mean, this is really gonna gonna age me, but it was a lot of photocopying things and a lot of <laughs> typing things out. You couldn't edit a PDF in those days. So you had me instead typing out the syndicated stories from the overseas publications. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was really exciting and it was really intoxicating seeing my name in print. I mean, I can't think yeah, they must that have is just still credited. still the greatest feeling. It's yeah. Still- I must have just been credited as intern or like <laughs> typist, but <laughs> nice of them to put me in there. But and then yeah, eventually. You're on the, you're on the front page there as part of the, the team. the old masthead. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> wow. So nice. that was really exciting. And. It's not just a byline. Like <laughs> yeah, well, the bylines, yeah, came a bit later. And after that, I. Well, I suppose it would have been during that internship that I got accepted into honours. So I went back and did that, honours in English. and Casual. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it was, again, very much a 
I came here to study English and that's what I'm going to do type of step. Was that just like a goal from like when you were young? Because you, I remember you telling me you studied drama and stuff like that. So you've just always yeah. been into like, because I'm assuming <laughs> drama like plays, you know, the written word. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's quite interesting how how often actually I think about drama ending up being a useful subject. <laughs> I was talking to one of the one of the letterhead writers the other day about how you have to do improv in <laughs> drama and about how that actually ends up becoming quite useful in life when you have to make things up on the spot, which is so much of being a writer. Um, yes, and. But I, <laughs> well, exactly. And I, I always wanted to study English, but I think I had a very different idea about what I wanted to do with it. I think that I kind of imagined myself staying in academia and just... I imagined as much. Yeah. <laughs> like, if Thanks. I ever studied, that's what I was going to do. Okay. Like, okay, I was good. fully like, I just want to be a professor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just... <laughs> Again, take me away from people. I want to be in my dusty office. <laughs> yeah, like, I, what do you mean? I get to read books all day and teach them to yes, kids? Yeah, that, so that was great. the dream. And yeah, I think that, uh, I think from a young age, I did have that that vague, I want to be a writer idea. And yeah, I was one of those kids who does art, drama, and history. So it was you just... You read a ton of books. And... Yeah, it was just a lot of essays. Were you library monitor at all? It, absolutely. Yeah, the so... Was a, a lot of people are like, you must have been a prefect. Definitely not. Wasn't for me, but I was a dedicated library monitor. So you know about the Dewey Decibel system? <laughs> I, I, I'm i aware of it. I, um, I, I don't know more about it than the average person, but I, well, okay, maybe slightly more than the average person now I think about it, because... I was catching up with a friend of mine from Manor Gardens Primary School, and we were just talking about how that was one of the things that they made us learn in library lessons, the basics of the Dewey Decimal System. It's funny that they were library lessons. <laughs> yes, that is another another thing that Although the kids we had will that never... Although oh, yeah. Yeah, there Penzans, we go. Yeah. Okay. And we also okay. learned about the Dewey Decimal System. I think it was so you could find books, because that's <laughs> how you would find books back then. It's like, oh yeah, that's in that section. If I'm looking for the Bible, it's in like, or like, you know, books in the religious section... They were always in the beginning. That's what I remember. Like the zeros <laughs> were like the religious In the beginning. Stuff. I see what you nah. did there. No. Well, I think that I, might be the old, like the joke <laughs> by whoever created the Dewey Decimal The Dewey Decimal System person who, who was apparently Dewey. was, was <laughs> terrible. So like, you, another problematic fave in case Dewey would, the Dewey Decimal <laughs> System was a fave of yours. I always preferred Huey and Louie to Cancel. be honest. <laughs> good, good reference. But... I, yeah, I don't know if any love of books and reading was cultivated there in the library lessons, but essentially <laughs> that was, that was the plan to go and, and do writing things. And... But was that, was that because mm, of reading? Yeah, because of reading and because I, I guess I've always just liked writing things. I remember writing little stories when I was very small, when I learned to write and as a teenager, <laughs> did you keep it up or was it harder when you like have to write essays and stuff for school? Because I know for myself, like this high school, like took away a lot of my joy of writing. <laughs> Killed your love of writing. That is a really good question. I remember having a lot of journals or diaries in high school, but as I, I don't remember writing stories. And when I'm thinking about journals and diaries, I'm probably thinking of when you like decorate your school 
diary with friends' birthdays. Maybe I'm maybe I need to go dig in the boxes and do a bit of a bit of a personal history because I'm not really sure when I stopped or started or if I ever stopped or started over my teen years. Okay. And I've probably blocked a lot of it out because it was a blur of essays and drama pracs and art pracs. And, yeah, uh, I hate the forced essay writing <laughs> shit. So, like, you got to, like, they like the way they teach you to write in high school is so bad because they want it to be, like, so overly, like, descriptive and overly, like, you just, yeah. yeah, a lot of adverbs. And, like, I'm like... <laughs> And I'm never gonna I'm never gonna criticize history classes because <laughs> great to History have, teachers are always the best teachers. Always the best. And I mean, how can we fault someone who taught you to check check your sources when no one does that these days? But <laughs> I I do remember that all history essays had to have a really neat conclusion. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I can see when young writers have recently come out of academia and, and so we can see. <laughs> and it's like, this this was an essay about blazers. We don't need a conclusion. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I think for just for my own writing, it took me years to like realize like you don't actually need like a nice little cap off at the end. You could just finish the story. Just like a bit of a mic drop. <laughs> yeah, you can do a mic drop. Like, it do, yeah, you don't have to tie everything in all the time. I still love doing that. Like, <laughs> if you read my first line, you read my last line, a lot of the time, hey, there's something there. But like, <laughs> I've also learned you don't have to do that all the time. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Expect some notes on your next Google talk. Oh, it's, no, it's not going to happen now. Like, now that I've told you, I'm going to like, I'm going to hit you with the rope and You don't want to know. Can't wait. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next piece anyway. So, yeah, you were studying, you got into the glamour, like, uh, laugh. Yeah, okay, so there I was working in magazines, and, yeah, I was. I think we got into this because I was explaining what an online assistant <laughs> yes. was. So it was 2010, and it's very difficult to explain to a 20-year-old now, because I was 20 then. Just how different the world was. <laughs> just how different the world was, and more to the point that not everything had a website. So magazines didn't have websites. Mm -hmm. And I was I happened to be in the right place at the right time when magazines were realizing they needed websites. And I think they sort of cast their eyes around for the youngest person in the room. <laughs> and that was me. And they decided to get me to help with the online things. And I think that... Dylan Muhlenberg had put his hand up to be the online editor. And so he was in charge. He was deciding what the website would look like, what needed to happen, where. It seems like a role he's continued to take on. Yeah. I mean, he is very much the right person for that type of job. I think I think he might be another person who likes people, like a Patrick. So <laughs> he enjoys interviewing and he enjoys finding stories and being out there. And yeah, he's he's... The, I guess the reason that I stayed at GQ as long as I did, because I was working across both brands on the in the online department, because, <laughs> I mean, it's a website. How much work could it need? And <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's still like how people think. Definitely still how people think. But yeah, it was good. And we were we were, I think, developing the Glamour site while we were operating the GQ site. And... Yeah, learning about Twitter and whether a brand could possibly need one. And, wow. you know, <laughs> again, it's very much, it's very 
unknowably different and at the same time it's so similar to now because the conversation now about does your brand need a TikTok sounds exactly the same as what we were discussing then. I mean I think <laughs> yes and no but like <laughs> yeah it's funny because like to me like Twitter as like someone I mean just all the stuff like just back then as someone with you know a brand that like I had started on my own was just like what do you mean free distribution fuck yes exactly. like that was like exactly yeah and I think that I think that still is very much the attitude that I have to social media um but and it's I not love... free distribution anymore yeah. that's <laughs> yeah, the thing that's there's true. no distribution and it's not free so like <laughs> Which is why everyone wants to jump on TikTok because TikTok's yeah. got distribution. But like when I chat to people about it, you know, how many people are coming to your shows because of your 10 million views on TikTok? <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. that kind of thing. I mean, it's the same thing with Twitter. Like, you know, how many people came to people's shows because they had 10,000 followers? Yeah. And not that many. But even, even worse than that is the fact that at least with Twitter, it was one hopefully well-worded tweet. How long could that possibly take you? Whereas uh, I think more and more social media is training us to be good content creators who yep. take such a long time to create a piece of content that basically says, come to my show. Yeah. And not just that, let's look at my life like, yeah. a lot of time. Like <laughs> everyone now creates a reel of their last month or the holiday yeah. that went on, myself included. Like. You know, we all feel this need. And like, so you're spending two or three hours of your day, mm. you know, on CapCut there, busy putting mm. these things in. And like, it's not that good. Like, your <laughs> friends like it, like after watching like three seconds, you know, they don't see watch the whole thing anyway. Like, it's just, it's a weird thing that we're doing at the moment. It's a very weird thing. So yeah, before we were rudely interrupted by technology once again, I was saying that um, on Instagram I've been... Yeah, making people pick between <laughs> making people pick between movies. P uh, perhaps? Peter Pickle, Papa posting <laughs> pink things. Uh, no, so I have been making people pick between two movies, and okay. you know, some people loving this, responding every day. Like I get, you know, like some pretty good responses compared to the number of people who look at my stories. Uh huh. Most of them are actually getting involved, which is pretty cool. Well, not most, actually, I'd say. But most, <laughs> in like, if, you know, the average is like 1% to 10%, it's above that. Right, you know? increased interaction. There You're going to make a slide on your, your PowerPoint. But. But. A lot of people who, you know, I liked looking at my stories, like, are no longer looking at them. Oh, some so metrics I, I, are down, other metrics are up. Yeah, like I was saying just now to you off mic, you know, I scared the hose. Like, oh, it's... But it happens. But then I've gained another, like, I've gained an interaction. So it's like... <laughs> I, I I don't know if that's a net positive. How are you <laughs> feeling about it all? Well, the way I feel is that maybe those hoes aren't for me. That's beautiful. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad that, like your history essays in high school, we've tied this up with a really nice, neat conclusion. <laughs> and um. that, that you've found the stage in your life. And yeah, as, it can be scary and hoes and be okay with it. Exactly. And like we also mentioned off camera. Off, <laughs> off camera. No, off, what is this thing? It's off a microphone, mic. wow. Um, off microphone. 
You have mentioned that you are having a midlife crisis, which is exciting <laughs> because you are estimating you will be dead at 70. And which is I think way more than like I ever gave it before. Yeah. So now is the time to just live your truth. Be cringe but free. <laughs> I'm just saying phrases at this point. I I'm haven't seen you. the it's movie like, stories. My midlife crisis is like within my budget though. So it's like I'm buying like... <laughs> A Parker parent and, you know, <laughs> some really nice bottles of wine, you know, like that. Love it. That's that's quite a quite a chic way to have a midlife crisis. Exactly. Well, that's why I know it's a midlife crisis, because, you know, I grew up like, you know, punk and hating nice things and all of that. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, no, I want to conform to like the things that society thinks are nice. But, you know, I think I'm finding the things within society that I think are nice, too. I'm finding my signs and signifiers that like I can identify <laughs> with and like project out into the world. Excellent. Sounds to me like you're about to pitch some wine writing. <laughs> we'll be ready. Hey, the, the, <laughs> that's another avenue. That's the thing. The more hobbies I pick up, the more stuff I can write about. <laughs> it's research. It's things you can write off on your, your tax expenses. I need to get involved in that. Yeah, I, need to, <laughs> no. I need to chat to you more about that. I feel like we were talking about something before that, but we got horribly, horribly disrailed. Okay. I was mostly talking about your laugh. If, yeah. If, yeah, which is... Which is <laughs> A good a good tie-in to, to wine and pens? Life, life, right? No, can't do it. The midlife crises. <laughs> um, yeah, could be that. But I think that what we were, I think the point we were at in my life was when I was starting in magazines and then not much happens in the story um, after that. I basically Ooh. just stay at the magazine for about four years. And yeah, during that time, I got to do a lot of different stuff, most of it online. Like I said, learned a bit about the the print process, but then as now, mostly I think... Mostly the online. <laughs> mostly the online side, and I think then as now... Um, but that timing is great, considering everything else that's happened for you. Yeah. Like, because yeah. from there, you went to Superbalist. Yes, from there, Which I, is where, like, I came to know you better. Like, yes, I knew you from right. Twitter, but... that's right, yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> that's a horrible thought. You, you've paid some of my bills over the years through, yeah. like, Superbalist and very other... Spree as well was one, I think? It, yeah, was I, I was never at Spree, but... But you hooked Spree. me up? With Very possibly. I think that was, oh, maybe credit. it was Dylan. Yeah, like it was but... like someone from the Superbalist <laughs> hookup <laughs> got me in at Spree. I think. Perfect. I'll I'll take at least partial credit for that then. And yeah, after I left magazines, I actually had planned to go freelance again, and I didn't have time to work out whether that was for me and whether I was going to succeed or fail because Dylan, who'd left. Condé Nast magazines years before, got in touch with me almost as soon as I'd posted on Facebook saying that I was going full-time freelance. And he said that they needed a head of copy at Superbalist. And if I remember correctly, there was a, recru a recruitment fee if you found the right person for <laughs> position. I always have to say that just to make it clear that I'm not just... Some gifted. <laughs> he wanted the money, but hopefully he hopefully he didn't regret regret making that recommendation of me. And then I went to Superbalist and I was there for about four years again. Um, it was a really, I suppose, short term. It was meant to be a short term decision is what I'm saying, because they needed a style guide developed. The brand was 
another word I have, pivoting. Um, brand was sort of repositioning and they needed a tone guide that really sounded like who they were. And I was very excited about that. You can imagine being at Con and Ast, you are working with very um, strict well, guidelines yes. from... Yeah, handed down from the, from the legacy publications and, yeah. from overseas. Yeah. And it was really nice to sort of make something new. And then I, I guess, first of all, I really enjoy work. Second of all, I really enjoyed working with the people I What's was working it like with. What's it like working with a brand like that, you know, and then creating stuff that's essentially a magazine? Because like, that's it, like the superbalist, like the way of us yes. was an online magazine. Yeah. Like, and it was a good one. Like, yeah, it was. And But it's just like with the whole branded side of everything, it's like this weird thing of like how life and like content did, did show, like I think superbalists were ahead of the game with that mm. regard in terms of like doing that because more brands are doing that now, yeah. essentially. And it's an interesting thing from going from being the advertisers to being the content producers. Mm. Absolutely. And. I think that, yeah, Suburbalist was definitely ahead of the game in terms of making the way of us quite separate to Superbalist. It wasn't the Superbalist blog, yeah. and you didn't have to tie every single thing back to, and so, in conclusion, we need to buy some sneakers. Yeah, I mean, the interview with me on there has no links to anything. Yeah, <laughs> so that was really great, and I really enjoyed being... I'll say involved in that planning process. I wasn't that closely involved in it other than, as we were saying earlier, yeah. disappointing people <laughs> by submitting my articles late because I was busy with mailers. But it was really interesting to be there from the creation Pretty of the tone guide all the way to deciding what different types of content we would be using to making it all happen. And I think that Again, that was something that Superbalist was ahead of the game on. And I think that having that sort of non-branded, branded content is something that, as you say, a lot of brands and a lot mm -hmm. of organizations are moving towards wanting to do more of, which, as far as I'm concerned, is great. It's really nice being given part of a brand's budget to do a fun story that people will come to their site and read. And what I've at least found, which is interesting within this space, is at least with the letterhead clients a lot of the time, is this freedom, which yeah. you wouldn't expect because a lot of the time, like with magazines, mm. you can't do stuff because they're worried about losing advertisers. <laughs> yes. And now the advertisers are like, hey, write whatever you want. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, that's something that's really interesting to see. And I think that... Yeah, I won't get into all my all my <laughs> thoughts on the future of media and what we should all be working towards, but I think that so much of what we write in the future will be like that and it will be a case of someone wanting to put money into a publication and wanting to give the people who are the experts on it the freedom to do it. And yeah, that's something that I really appreciate about the guys that I worked with at Superbalist and the, the CEOs at the time were great at giving us that freedom to do <laughs> what needed to be done to make a good publication, which was generally an online magazine and was sometimes a print magazine. And yeah, which I'd love to do something similar to in the future if anyone is listening and wants to throw money in my direction to make another print publication. That would be ideal. So yeah, a lot of the projects that I work on now are what we're describing are brand sponsored or brand paid for and only need to have sort of a 
tenuous link to <laughs> the the product um, that I mean, the brand makes or sells. Because like one yeah. of the things, like it hasn't gone up yet, but I wrote an article about Axe Books yeah. for Shelf Life. Yeah, which, exactly. Like for me, it's cool because, yeah, I want more people to know about Axe Books. <laughs> like, so. And it's really nice. I mean, I think that the the thought behind that makes so much sense because it does make you like the brand more. I know that yeah. being liked is not the <laughs> end goal for every well, brand, but it, it, it does, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It does, for me at least, build that kind of positive sentiment if I feel like they want me to know about cool things that are happening yeah. and interesting people. Uh, maybe I'm a bit of an idealist, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. And yeah, from Superbulous, that was where I eventually went for full-time freelance after... We actually yeah. need to, just before batteries die and you need yeah. to leave, yeah. you wrote a book. Oh yeah, <laughs> I did like, that. Well, I did that in between too. No, I, I did that while I was doing my master's. So the reason we skipped over that is because <laughs> you UCT credit. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually quite enjoyed that that part of my academia. Um, creative writing masters at UCT, which I believe is quite different now because you have to do a few electives that are in person that are listening to lectures of sorts. But back back then, back in my day, it was basically going to a tutorial every week and then going to another session where you all shared your work. So not only did it hold me very accountable to be creating some work, but and I that's think... That's all you had to do. That was all you had to do. So <laughs> it was also really great for learning exactly what I was talking about earlier, which is that some people will love your work and some people will hate that exact same work. And you can sit there quietly and watch them in person fighting about whether it's good or not. Um, <laughs> and once you've seen that, you really feel a lot less affected by feedback because for every person who thinks that it's terrible, well... If you'd given it to someone else, they would have thought it was the best thing ever. So, so that was good for me. Critics. <laughs> and yeah, at the end of that, I had a manuscript and my supervisor was great with helping me send it to publishers. And after some waiting and I think two rejections, Only two. three, two, Two and a I mean, half they're on complicated one, story. They're on one hand. That's very <laughs> <cute>. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jakana published it. And I was really excited about that because they are a South African publisher, yeah. independent South African publisher. And they were really great about, I guess, holding my hand through the process and and getting me an amazing editor to work on it. As we were saying, every, every written word that goes out into the world is extensively edited. And I was lucky to have had most of my embarrassing mistakes spotted before it <laughs> was there on the page. And that was almost 10 years ago. And I feel obliged to mention that because I should write another book one yeah, of these days. When are you doing that? <laughs> I guess I need to be pressured into it again. So I probably need the accountability of something like the master's degree. So similarly, if anyone wants... Or just saying <laughs> on a podcast that you're starting another book. Yeah, or something like that. 
<laughs> I think that yeah, I've been using using the excuse for a long time. Again, coming back to Dylan Muhlenberg of Donna Tartt taking ten years between her first novel and her second novel. But first of all, I'm not Donna Tartt, so I'm not living <laughs> off that secret history money. And secondly, ten years is gone, so <laughs> I don't have it's that excuse. Time to get started. Anymore. It's time. <laughs> As a good writer, you only start writing when the deadline. <laughs> there, you, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so that does bring us, I think, to the end. We've gotten quite a lot. We might eventually have to do this again because I feel like there's so much <laughs> under the currents. Because also, like, the other day you mentioned something about your 20s. You weren't a very nice person. And I want to delve into <laughs> that at some point. But for now, I'm going to ask you the same thing I've been asking everyone to end the podcast. What is a big mistake you've learned an important lesson from? Oh, that is a question that I always ask in those mail and guardian interview sheets that we send out and I've never had to answer it myself so let me think this over <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes so just give me some time to think this think this through I'll try to do it before the battery dies <laughs> I would say and I hope this isn't too much of a too much of a I'm such a perfectionist type of answer but I think that yeah what are your flaws well you know I'm just I'm too much of a perfectionist um. I think that I spent way too much time doubting myself and I do think that that is an important point to make because I think that it did actually define quite a bit of my early career. And I think that I've been fortunate to have a lot of people who are on my side and who have had every confidence in me. And I spent a lot of time undermining my own success, self-sabotaging um, in many aspects of life. You wouldn't be a good writer if you didn't. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. Exactly. And... Yeah, I think that so much procrastination, which writers are also famous for, comes right down to Everyone that. Everyone except for Stephen fucking King. <laughs> except for him. He just will dive right in there and write everything down. And yeah, I think that I think if I wasn't still doing that, I'd probably have a good few novels churned out. So I'm not saying that uh, I'm not saying it's a it's a big mistake in my past, but <laughs> I do think that yeah, it's something that I do regret having wasted a lot of time not liking any of the stuff that I was doing and having wasted a lot of time being far too sensitive about so many of the things I was putting out into the world and so many of the interactions that I had with other people. When I'm just I, smiling like, like a green bit here because, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Just yep. smiling, remembering all the examples that we both have. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that I think most writers have had that experience and... Uh, there are so many different things you can put it down to, from imposter syndrome to, you know... Anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. not being praised enough as a child, or in my case, being overpraised as a child. Um, but eventually, yeah, you do have that moment where you realise that there are always going to be people who hate what you're doing, and there are always going to be people who like it, so... You might as well just do it anyway. Yeah, as long as you enjoy it. <laughs> as long as you enjoy it. Or not even that, like, as long as you don't hate it that much. <laughs> as long as you like it. That's... As long as you. <laughs> That's what we got. That's what we got. So. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. So that was Kaylee. You enjoyed that? Yeah, you enjoyed that. I know I did. I had, a, I had a great time, both in the edits and having the conversation. That's how, that's how I know it's a good one. I do have like a correction. It wasn't uh, Kaylee at all who helped me with Spree. That was Marika Mertz. 
And I think it was just the Cape Town connection that got me thinking about that. So shoutouts to Marika for helping me, uh, yeah, pay some rent. And uh, shoutouts to Kaylee for the very same thing. And uh, also, like with uh, Durban is yours, I do need to give a shout out to Russell Grant because he was definitely more of the editor editor in terms of big picture in the in the pieces. I was more big picture in terms of all the content and the timing and when stuff went out and just running everything, you know. But my my strength is never being at least not for my own work seeing the full picture i usually i usually need someone else to just be like well what do you mean by this or i think uh i think you could cut that out and maybe maybe develop this a little bit more and usually it's like you know what that's that's a pretty good suggestion let me let me do that actually that's a fucking lie for the most part like throughout my career it's always been like this guy's a fucking idiot what are they talking about but these days these days i appreciate that a lot more i have slightly less hubris only slightly but that does count it does matter so yeah what else can i tell you didn't quite make dry january fully i drank on saturday on the 28th i think and uh, I'm, I'm totally fucking cool with it. Like, I'm not like, oh, I'm disappointed with myself. Like, I made a conscious choice because I'm a fucking adult and I can't do that. It's like, I don't have to stick to anything too dogmatic, you know? Like, it's uh, everything in moderation, including moderation, as old Oscar Wilde once said. And what else? Yeah, I went to, went out some, on Helen Joseph Road and had a fucking great time going out. And then last night we did First Thursdays at Studio 031, which is a Roots sub vibe with uh, Damien and Ryan and a whole bunch of different people. And Nepo as well, Nepo puts that together. And yeah, Ryan Van Roy and Nepo heard you can listen to interviews with them on this podcast from back in the day. And Damien's actually the guy who made the bed music you hear underneath you and the banging intro at the start of this so Durban's very fucking small people is basically what I'm telling you and yeah I'm stoked that Ryan and Demo and Nepal are you know trying to bring vibes back because yo it's strange like I like I've never been like the biggest like fan of the first Thursday's vibe but it is cool that it gets people out and it gets different um, communities together and the station drive first Thursday's did like it was massive for a while like it was pretty fucking huge and then with COVID a lot of the businesses there have shut down and so it's not anything like it was but it was still a vibe it was still cool to hang out with like a bunch of dope cats people I haven't seen in a while and yeah get to listen to some dope music and just connect a little so that was that was fun and I'm looking forward to the rest of this month, there's, there's actually quite a few dope things happening. There's like a poetry slam happening. I'm going to check that out. That's on the 11th at uh, Station Collective. So pretty pretty pumped about that. And I'm also probably going to be doing an open mic gig there out in their courtyard. Just we'll be trying to figure out dates. And yeah, as I said at the beginning, got my, my birthday party vibe, Bob's Bodacious Birthday Bash, as it's called. And then we got fucking Stump Noise. And I know there's other things. Like I think going to Style Sundays at the KZNSA this weekend. Like I don't know why this is now suddenly becoming a gig guide. But yeah, I've been looking forward to doing some shit again. Now that uh, people are slightly less broke than they were in January. 
Oh yeah, I've also kind of broken the streak of watching a movie every day now, so whatever. But we still, we're still doing most days, putting up a poll over at Instagram, over at Almost Perfect Bob in the stories there. And you and everyone else can pick the movie that I watch. Now, this week we watched The Banshees of Inner which was fucking great. Just fucking great. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, because... It definitely ramps up a bit, and uh, it's <laughs> yeah. The they choices were made. Let's just say that I watched Batman Forever, which is actually fucking great. Like, oh my god, this movie is amazing. It's so campy and it's so fucking tongue in cheek and it's so just. I miss when comic book movies were fun. Like Jim Carrey gives an all-time fucking performance as the Riddler. I loved it. Like I absolutely actually think it might probably be the best Batman movie because it doesn't take itself too fucking seriously and it's just a good time. Uh, watch Jackass Forever. Another movie does not take itself seriously and uh, yeah, I had a good time. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Five fucking stars, people. Five fucking stars. Uh, yeah, you also are going to need tissues. I don't know if anyone's told you that. Because nobody told me that, and I'll end up needing a lot of tissues. And not because I was jerking off. Don't, not, get, get your mind out of the fucking gutter, people. No, it's because it's a tear jerker. It's not a dick jerker. So yeah, I recommend checking all of those out, actually. And you can see what else I've been watching over at Letterboxd. Uh, Almost Perfect Bob is my handle there. Cool. So I guess uh, that's all I need to chat to you about, which means it's time to shout out the titular titles tier over at patreon.com forward slash almost perfect. That's a tier, it's $10 tier, it's a top tier, and it's the titular titles tier. And you get to pick your title right here on the Almost Perfect podcast. Oh, it's also $10. I think I needed to say that. That's the whole thing. It's, there's alliteration here. But yeah, uh, you, you pay me $10 a month. I make you a part of the cast and crew, basically. You become a part of the team over here at Almost Perfect Media. So shout out to Rousseau, the storage clerk of Sudsel Heresies in the Lesser Oberberg region. Neil Green, the key grip. Rose Ventura, the director of purchasing. Russell Grant, a Far East correspondent. Karan Slemon, the Almost Perfect hedge fund manager. Karan Chetty, the assistant to the regional manager. Stephen Olafier, our executive producer, and Kath Jenkin, the inevitable ruler of the universe, and Queen Swifty. And a big thank you, of course, to Damien for the bed music and the banging intro. Shoutouts to you for listening all the way through to the end of the podcast. I really do appreciate that. And I will catch you on the flip side. <laughs>